Welcome to Do It For The Gram and Enneagram podcast with your host, certified Enneagram coach, Milton Stewart, where we do it for the Enneagram, not Instagram. We make moves to improve our lives and those in the community. I'm super excited about this episode. Super, super excited about this episode. As you know, we've been um, kind of studying and we're in a series of systemic racism and how it affects us to literally today. Today, I have literally one of my best friends, one of the smartest people I know on this podcast, my really, really, really good friend, really deep thinker, uh, Jackson House on the podcast. He has a master's in divinity. And so this episode, we're actually talking about how systemic racism had made has made its way into religion. And we're going to talk Christianity, especially in a country who was supposedly founded on religious freedom. Sometimes it seems that that doesn't seem to be the case in a lot of ways. And Jackson has a great, great factual and background knowledge on exactly how we got to the place we are and how actually religion, predominantly Christianity, has helped in systemic racism, unfortunately. So, Jackson, please welcome yourself. Hey, man. It's great to be on the podcast and it's great to be having this conversation. I really feel like this conversation for Christian people around racism, especially systemic racism and what we can do about it is probably the most important thing that we can be talking about right right now. So it's good to be here. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Intro music. Let's go. So we're starting back. So Jackson, um, you're you're almost like a, a case study for understanding how this all works. Can you give the audience a little bit of insight into like how you grew up and how you come to the place you are now? Yeah. So I grew up in Arkansas. I grew up in Little Rock, which is most famous probably because of the Little Rock Central Crisis in 1957. And my grandfather actually went to Little Rock Central couple years before that, but he wasn't there uh, at that time. Uh, but even before that, my family had been in Arkansas. I had relatives who believed so strongly for the cause of slavery that they fought and died in the Confederate Army to try to defend white supremacy and that particular institution of racism. I went to a, a private Christian school in Little Rock, which Christian schools in Little Rock were started mostly in the early 70s as a response to integration. And I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but that's when my school, my high school started. And so all the way from slavery to even the the high school that I attended, those are all examples of institutional systemic racism that have been part of my family, part of my life and it, part of who I am today. So part of who I am today is trying to be open about where I come from so that other people 
who come from a similar place maybe or come from a different place can also have conversations about uncomfortable topics like their own history of systemic racism. Thank you. Thank you. And so Jackson has literally, he um, did a few sessions with um, a small group of people and he really talked about how culture, how uh, religion, Christianity has kind of clashed in a way that has not been beneficial for people and Christians and in, in America. It hasn't been beneficial for anybody. And so some of the things he talked about, and I mentioned this in previous episodes, and this is where, I, and this is the guy I got it from, is the difference between subjective and objective racism. Jackson, can you speak on that more and explain it? Yeah. So uh, I think I got the idea of subjective racism from James Baldwin because he talks about the, the subjective experience of racism and what that was like for him. And that that concept really made sense as a corollary to systemic racism and that systemic racism is this just objective reality that you you can't deny it. You can look at statistics, numbers uh, across a wide variety of disciplines, and you can just see the objective reality of racism in our country today. So uh, an example of this that I give is like with drug sentencing policies. So in 1986, the penalty for possessing five grams of crack cocaine was worse than the penalty for trafficking one pound of powder cocaine. And obviously crack cocaine was used statistically more by black people, powder cocaine used more by white people, and the sentencing guidelines reflect a racist disparity. So that's just one example of objective racism. You talked about redlining. There's so many examples of just the objective reality of racism. And I think that may be a better way to help people understand it sometimes, because if you start talking about institutional racism or systemic racism, then people are like, how can a how can a, an institution be racist or how can a, a system be racist? Because uh, people think that racism is just this feeling that you have. But when you start talking about it as an objective statistical reality, then it's hard to deny. Yeah. And then that's where this series really part of it definitely originated from. It's like, can I teach people objective truths about how racism has infiltrated through the systems and the, the bones of like our country? You know, it's anything. It's kind of like even business, any organization. There's a reason why good organizations and great organizations do really well and the people love to be there. It's because there are literally rules, ordinances, culture that's been put in place way before everything else that you see and how people experience it. And so it's the exact same way with our country. Unfortunately, those bones have been built on racism and the structures that we have. So going even closer towards how Christianity in the country of America has become so individualistic in the way that it's like connected to this idea of freedom, but it seems to be only a personal freedom and not for everyone. Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah. So uh, I, I can speak from the perspective of what 
white evangelical Christianity is for the most part. Uh, it's probably the most influential part of Christianity in popular culture, like political culture, and it really influences a lot of our discourse. So the mainstream view in white evangelical Christianity is that sin is a moral issue. Salvation is a personal experience. And so related to both of those things, the, the purpose of religion in general is to have a personal relationship with Jesus and through Jesus with God. So it, uh, evangelical Christianity tends to be very individualistic. And for most people, they don't think about that as a negative thing. They think about that in terms of their personal relationship with God. So it's, it's a very positive thing for them. But where it becomes negative is that it teaches people to think only in individualistic categories. So when people are talking about racism, they say things like, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And what they, what they mean by that is that it's a personal problem that people hate other people. Uh, they, they ignore any kind of greater reality just other than just personal feelings of hatred. And that's really like you've talked about a really narrow definition of what racism is. So really our, our particular kind of Christianity forces us into this really narrow definition of what racism actually is. Man, um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and you know, and it's a, and some people here probably have even seen on YouTube a person who literally uh, said that black men are the problem with America, and then told me he wasn't racist. And I said, "Wow, the how literally you don't see that it's so much bigger than that, you know? Um, you know, just because you have a few black friends, don't mean that you don't have racist tendencies or do things to support white supremacy. Doesn't mean that people have said that from the beginning, though. Like even when in the battle for desegregation, there were white Southern ministers who said that segregation wasn't actually racist. Uh, after the Civil War, President Andrew Johnson said that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments had the tendency to be racist against white people. So people have been making the argument of reverse racism or non-racism all the way along. And people don't realize when they make those arguments today that those are the arguments people have been making for over 200 years. That's the crazy part about it. It's it's the same narrative, literally saying the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are like reverse racism in a way. It's the it's the craziest thing, but it's still it's still going on though. Still going on. So, do you can you talk about a little bit about how I would say a little bit probably before and definitely after slavery, and you can correct my history if I'm wrong, when we had in America, unfortunately, we're still doing it to a certain extent, but where they were using scriptures to enslave people and to try to keep them and make them believe that you're supposed to be a slave. Yeah, well, uh, really early on, uh, like in the 1600s, slave owners tended not to preach Christianity to their slaves because they were afraid if their slaves became Christians, 
then they would have to set them free. So bef- before there was like this really codified system of slavery in America, the slave owners actually didn't want their slaves to become Christians because you know, obviously they would have a moral responsibility to them as their Christian brothers and sisters, and they didn't want that. So the slave owners could be Christians and their families could be Christians, but they would just leave the slaves completely out of it. Uh, but then there were some missionaries who would go and preach to the slaves anyway. And so the slave owners had this dilemma. And eventually uh, some of the colonies, and I, I think by this point, also the states, I can't remember which state it was, but it actually passed a law that said that it was okay for slaves to become Christians and it wouldn't affect their status as property of their owners. So a Southern state actually passed that law that made it okay and it wouldn't affect the slaves' freedom if they became a Christian. So pretty much after that law was when Christianity started being used by slave owners as a tool for oppression. Uh, All the verses about servants obey your masters in the New Testament, Philemon, all that stuff started to be used by slave owners to institutionalize Christianity as uh, the system of preserving the power structure. But I think it's really telling that before that, they were afraid to baptize their slaves because they knew that there is this inherent freedom in Christianity. Mm. So, man, that is, you know, I've, I've heard so much of the same rhetoric arguments, you know, like the same, like not, not even, not even like nuanced, you know, it's like, wow. It's like, I think you got that from a chat room, you know, like I, I feel like you have no clue what you're really talking about on some of these points that people bring up about why systemic racism or racism is not happening or didn't exist and all this type of stuff. So you you read a book that you were mentioning earlier before we started that kind of maps out how this has actually happened, how Christianity, unfortunately, brought in a lot of white supremacy and impacts like today how religion and our, all of our big systems work, actually. Like, can you give more insight into that? Yeah, the book is called The Color of Compromise. Uh, from the title, his argument basically is that things didn't have to turn out the way they did. So at, at every step along the way, compromises were made and Christianity itself was compromised by racist people who used it as a tool for oppression and even just as a system Christianity was compromised in service of white supremacy and power uh, so he talks about different it's a, it's a really good historical overview of just the relationship between Christianity and race in America but all along like there were different groups of Christians, like the Southern Baptist Convention is one group that separated from uh, its previous body just over the issue of slavery. So uh, Christians would actually prefer to 
maintain the institution of slavery and white supremacy rather than to maintain Christian unity with their brothers and sisters. So basically, all along, Christians have chosen to compromise their faith rather than to take the risk of pursuing justice. And he also touches on the problem that Dr. King touches on in the letter from Birmingham jail with moderate Christians. And he says that even Christians who you know, weren't members of the KKK or who weren't you know, actively involved in defending slavery, even Christians who didn't do that were still complicit in the system as long as they remained silent. So he says that the only wrong action is inaction for Christians. So the worst thing that we can do is obviously to fight against justice. But the second worst thing we can do is be complicit in a system of injustice. And I think that's where probably 80% of people are today. And that is, man, that that is the truth right there. And that is the biggest issue I had with a conversation I was having with a former colleague who's a white male. Uh, he said, I, I really dislike, you know, what's going on with this injustice and everything. And I said, okay, you say that, but what are you doing to make change it? What are you doing to make a difference? Like, what are you doing? And there was, there was no response. Like, he had no response for that. And I said, well then you're actually actually keeping it going because you're not standing up for being able to stop it, to being able to educate people on what's really happening. And so like there was just like this big pause there because there was no there was no action towards like actually saying, oh, I'm actually going to try to do something about it instead of just saying, oh, that really frustrates me. That's a bad thing. And then going about your way in your life. And so let me ask you this question like to you because um, for audiences who are listening, Jackson is a nine. And so it's easy for a nine to go with the flow. But Jackson has done immense inner work. And like he is not only rocking the boat by like what we're talking about here. He has a lot of things he's doing in his life that is rocking quite a few boats because things are wrong and he's standing up and he's actually making a stand like a nine. He's doing the things that the nine should be doing and committing right action, the action to actually move towards doing and moving towards things that are right and creating them and being a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper. So Jackson, can you speak to how you came to the point where you are? Because you grew up in Arkansas and like the history, the historical events of your family were tied to the Confederate. And so it only makes sense. It comes down that, you know, you lean towards, you know, the part of the Confederacy that was more Republican now, uh, considered more Republican now and more for like things are good as they are. So how did you get to the point where you are today as a nine? I think, I don't know, good people in my life throughout, people in my family that also wanted to distance themselves from just the, the baggage of being in the South and people, I had friends along the way. And when I was in college, especially, I was studying history and I wanted to study Southern history because that's where I came from. And it's just the more I studied Southern history, the more that the truth was obvious to me. And another thing that was obvious to me is that people hadn't really reconciled themselves 
to Southern history or to the history of racism and injustice. So I don't know. It's just, I don't remember a time when things changed for me. It was just a constant development throughout my life. But I think what really pushed me more into action was getting really specific. So my senior year of college, my final paper, like my capstone paper for my degree, I wrote about the Emmett Till case. So I spent a whole semester reading and writing about Emmett Till and you know, then talking with people like my grandmother, who was the exact same age as Emmett Till, and just the different experiences that their two lives had taken the trajectories. And then coming to Memphis for grad school and just the experience of going to a church that was predominantly black and how people uh, relate to the experience of injustice differently when it's personal for them. So injustice and history and all of that was abstract for me until I really became close to people who experienced it personally, experienced it every day. And that really had a big impact on me too. Um, I don't know if you remember when we were out to eat in Mississippi one time and Yep, I was just thinking that. <laughs> table of people that were you know, really giving us dirty looks because we were a group of mixed black and white people, you know, out there on a Sunday afternoon having our lunch, having a great time. And that table that you could just tell they were bothered by it. And I think that was probably the first time in my life where actually uh, I experienced in close proximity, actual racism like that. Well, in high school, because I supported Barack Obama in 2008, I, I received some harsh words from people for that. But uh, other than that, yeah, so that experience. And then my response to that, I'm sure you remember, was basically like almost like irrational anger. Like just... <laughs> <laughs> That that nine rage is real. Oh my goodness. And and this is this is the part that I, I love. It's like when you're in relationship with people and people who are differently, when you see people get treated like like wrong simply because of the freaking color of their skin or some or something about them that may be different from the other person, like it infuriates you. It makes you mad because it's not right. It's just a human right at the end of the day. It's not even, you know what I'm saying? Like, unfortunately, it's over skin color. Like generations from now, hopefully we get past a lot of this racism. There'll be something else. But hopefully the kids in the future look back and say, dang, them folks were slow. They were really mad about the different color of somebody's skin. They literally hated people because of a different color of their skin. So, man, I, I don't know. It's just... I hope that you know, 150 years from now, people look back on us the way that, that we look back on slave owners, you know, like completely impossible for us to even consider the idea of slavery as it existed in the U.S., like we think it's impossible that that could exist today, and I hope in the future people think it's impossible that racism and objective systemic racism could exist like it does today. After that, that experience of just 
you know, the nine rage. And that was really <laughs> the first time I think that I ever like felt nine rage like that. And since then, it's been kind of a, a journey of learning how to channel that into something productive. So for me, that's the search for truth. And so I think that true peace, not just peace in the world, but even my inner peace can only come through truth. And so I, in regards to racial justice, I pursue truth and try to channel all of my energies into that and make that a more like rational outlet so that, so that it doesn't become anything else. Definitely. <laughs> Most definitely, man. I, I'm just like when you were mentioning, you was like, "Do you remember we ate out in you know the restaurant in Mississippi?" I'm glad we didn't say the restaurant name because I was about to drop it. But uh, um, yeah, man. I just remember that. That's how you know. You know what I'm saying? Like when you actually build relationships with people who are different and people actually care for one another. You know, have like real empathy for one another. Because, bro, when I saw you as mad, I was like, "Oh shoot, it's real. It's uh, this is real." Like you know because. As a black person, many black people, we get used to these things. Like, and it's just like we just kind of get used to the looks of being treated a certain way. And like the the people who are not affected by these things, when they stand up to injustice, like white people, when they stand up to injustice when other white people are doing it, it changes things. Like people are like, oh shoot, they're doing it. You know, like if someone gets pulled by a cop unfairly, it was a guy who's a former NBA player who's pulled over by a cop unjustly for no good reason. A white person literally parked behind the cop who was mad that they were putting them over and just like unjustly got crazy at the cop, got mad. And they were trying to calm the white person down while he was about to pull a black guy out the truck with his hands on it as if he did anything crazy. And this guy's like on TV. He does all these things. So it's stuff like that. It makes a difference when it's like when people call like wrong, wrong. You know what I'm saying? When they stand up for like what's right. So. That just that just makes me think, bringing it back to like our original topic at hand, how has, and we're talking about because systemic racism, what we're trying to get people to understand is that it impacts us to this very day. It is embedded in our culture. It is baked in the American pie, unfortunately. So systemic racism is baked all in that pie. And what makes it hard to see is because now it's more covert. It's in the different rules and laws and structures. And if you're not directly impacted by it or you don't necessarily see it and experience it, you may not even know what's happening. So when it does come to your eyes, it needs to be time to like start to educate yourself and start to act. So my question is, how has it, what are some ways and what are some things and how you see systemic racism has impacted Christianity and people in America today? One of the things that the book, The Color of Compromise, kind of ends on is that the system of systemic racism it is so baked into the reality of our society and our culture that it's almost like people don't have to do anything to perpetuate it. So with our more individualistic theology and uh, emphasis on personal conversion, salvation, personal relationship, literally as long as you're converting individual people to Christianity, that's, that's all you have to do in order to be a good evangelical Christian for a lot of people. You don't have to do anything broadly. 
in the culture of the system. And that just lets the system continue. So it's almost like we're at this point where the two things, the church and then the society at large, are just kind of on parallel tracks that they're not gonna they're not gonna impact each other unless uh, people choose for them to. So it takes people like Dr. King choosing to come at the fight for justice from a distinctly Christian place. I think that's that's what's missing in white evangelical circles today is that like we should care about Black Lives Matter because we're Christians, not also in addition to being Christian. Uh, so I think that's that's the the big way that the church has been affected is that like our Christianity is this one little thing, and then there's these other things that are different compartments of our life. But the compartmentalization of evangelicalism, the individualism, that is. Uh, affecting our ability to deal with racism in society. That lends into even the the um, the holy ideals of the Enneagram. Like, yes, part of us, we are unique, distinct, and separate, but we're all united in union in one anyway. Like, we're all there. And so it encompasses everything about us and the people here. And, and somehow, like you said, the individuality in the theology that uh, the Christi- that Christianity has become in America, it has been so detrimental and harmful for so many people. And I think this is, and I also want to mention like intersectionality in here, because you, Jackson, being a nine um, and a person who's done a lot of inner work, I remember very, very distinctly, it was a day we were riding in your car. I don't know where we were going. And... We were talking about some issue, some deep issue, and I mentioned how it affects Black people, you know, and then you said something to the effect of how do you think, um, it related somehow, you said, how do you think like women in the church feel in different positions and stuff? And that made me halt and say, wait, ooh, because you had connected how a lot of times there are a lot of different issues going on, a lot of different systemic issues going on. And sometimes we don't recognize just how they intersect and how they weave in and out of each other and affect each other. And what really that really helped me to do is to take a step back and look at, okay, what ways can I fight for justice in all different arenas because I am a Christian, right? Not just because this is my separate box. These are the only things I care about. No, because I'm a Christian, guess what? Women's rights matter too. And all these other rights, they matter too. People matter and they care about them. So it makes me step forward and look at that too. And then mentioning Martin Luther King, like literally people don't understand he didn't just fight for black people to have equality, you know, even equity. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to get equity out here before we can even get equality. Let's get at least that first, right? Uh, (laughs) But you know, he fought for way more things than just that. And people don't know that because people, you know, haven't necessarily done the research maybe, but like, man, he stood up for all kinds of like injustice. He stood against many things. He marched many times that weren't just for black people. So that's the thing, especially being a, a Christian. It is not the compartmentalized version of this is what I do because this is my Christian box and outside of it, I do whatever I want. I treat people like I want, all this type of stuff. No, it's supposed to permeate through your whole life. You know, and that's a huge issue that, you know, like, 
I see, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like Dr. King, it was really, I don't know. It's like towards the end of his life before he got murdered, when he started speaking more about the war in Vietnam and about capitalism and all these things. It's like people saw the power of putting it all together like that. Like Muhammad Ali also, he's, his objection to going to fight in Vietnam was because of how black people were treated in America. So it's like, once you put it all together like that, you see that justice touches every aspect of our society. Uh, I don't know, it, gets, it gets dangerous for society because, and dangerous for the people in power because their power can slip away. And I think that's one of the reasons that Dr. King got killed is because he started really hitting at the core of the issue the things that are affecting black people, poverty, uh, violence, militarism, the same militarism that the Alabama state police used to beat people in Selma is the same militarism that they were using in Vietnam, and it's all connected. So once Dr. King started talking about that, then people realized that he was really hitting at the core of the injustice that permeates our society. Yeah, which literally led to the FBI taping him and trying to consider him a terrorist. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah, he was considered, the FBI said that he was one of the most dangerous people in America. <laughs> Man, for for trying to be about the truth, you become very dangerous. Interesting. Yeah, and you become dangerous to yourself too because it challenges all the illusions that you have of yourself. The what you think of as your privilege or your power or your status or anything like that, when you really start pursuing justice, some of those things have to be called into question or risked or even given up for the sake of justice. So I think people really don't want to do that. And until maybe we realize that, like you were saying with intersectionality and like Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So systemic racism in this society actually negatively affects me, even though I'm a white man. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't affect me as directly or as harshly as it affects maybe black women, but society is still worse because of systemic racism. It's worse for everyone. That's what Toni Morrison said, is that you know, white people don't realize that racism is hurting them just as bad, if not worse, she said, than it's hurting black people. So how many of the problems that we have in our society today is because racism has so badly corrupted and hurt white people and created more problems? Mm -hmm. Man, I have been thinking that for like quite a while. And especially when you talk about um, epige epigenetics, um, I think I said that right. When you think about it and how trauma is passed down and, you know, a lot of times we think of it from the lens of how black people have had, you know, basically passed down PTSD just about, you know. And so at the same time, though, white people, it passed down some things too. trauma was passed down, too, from a lot. of. So it just made me think of that um, and kind of ponder on that, like what was passed down as well through epigenetics uh, to white people as well, who 
you know, grew up in families that are just racist. I'm going to be playing blunt honest, whether they are conscious of it or not, they're racist. So I don't know. In our society today, also racism is such a controversial word. Even it's like most people don't think it's possible that they could be racist, but do they feel differently if they're walking at night and they see a black man versus seeing a white man? the systemic bias, the implicit bias that exists. And guess what? Even people like me who really try to do meaningful things to affect change, implicit bias affects me too. It affects everyone. You know, that's, I remember when I took a, a test online, an implicit bias test, and I was like, oh, there's no way that you know I've got this implicit bias. And then I took the test and it, just like destroyed me. And then I started looking into it and it's, it's ubiquitous to the point that even black people have a high degree of implicit bias towards other black people. That's, that's the systemic part of it is that our culture even teaches black people to fear other black people, not just white people. So that's, that's again, another example of how systemic racism hurts everyone yeah i i literally took those tests like two weeks ago i have to do it for a class and um you know like i promise if i would have took it maybe earlier in life the results may be slightly different but i do i do have my own implicit biases and i saw it luckily i'm i've been doing the work so i'm kind of aware you know for the most part um on the ones i've taken so far you know but literally like the results say um, a lot of times people go in and thinking they don't have any implicit bias and find out that, wow, they really do have an implicit bias. And especially when it comes to black people and what they think of them, like because it's like you said, you don't literally have to do anything and it still perpetuates systemic racism. Like if you don't do anything, it is still just going to keep going and keep actually growing, probably, to be honest. So like it is deep unconscious, which is crazy. And I'm going to make sure I, um, I'm going to try to remember to add that um, test to uh, the show notes so people can go and take the test themselves and see, because like, it's an eye opener. Like you said, it's yeah, like, oh, I, shoot, I do prefer these people to these people. Most of Dang. us think okay. that we're a lot better than we actually are. Like most people think <laughs> True. like if they were the dictator, then they would be the benevolent dictator and they would be the one that would solve all the problems. Or like, you know, if they were a citizen in Nazi Germany, they would have been the one hiding Jews or, you know, all these things. Like everyone thinks of themselves in these really morally superior terms. And I think that actually hinders our ability to have conversations about race. Like when we can't admit that we have implicit bias or we can't admit our own history or our own sins, you know, then you really can't talk about it if you're presenting a false picture of yourself or a false picture of your society or your culture. So I think it's like, I think we should start every conversation about race in that way of like, like we don't have the, the moral high ground that we have to commit this seeking redemption just as much as uh, anyone else. Yeah, I agree, man. It's, um, I really think of it, I love the Enneagram going within 
and understanding truly who I am underneath this personality. Not We're not the number that we do have. Like, we're not that number. We wear that mask for a lot of different reasons, which I'm not going to this episode. But, like, there's some authentic person way beneath that. And underneath all of that is a person who is capable of anything. That's good, bad, and ugly. And so when we're able to recognize that and have empathy and put ourselves in other people's shoes, like, wow, this com- this person committed this action or whatever. If I had the same upbringing, the same people around me, nine times out of 10, the same mind they have, I would have made the same action. I, you know, so it's coming from a place of uh, a deeper understanding, like you're saying, of like, I, I understand myself much better. I'm capable of doing these things that I may consider to be like not okay, not good, maybe even ugly. And it's understanding that like the, you know how people have the spiritual bypass, but also the good person bypass. It's kind of like, I'm a good person. No, you're a person. And we can do good, bad, ugly, and in and, and all kinds of different types of things in life. And so I don't know, I don't know where we, I don't know how we got to the point where I don't know if this is just an American thing or a person thing around the world, but like where we have this idea that we are, quote unquote, a good person. I don't know. Part of me wants to think that that's like a a universal human thing. Like everyone thinks that they're good. Like people don't do the things they do without some psychological reward for that. So it's like people have reasons for doing what they do. And most people do it because they think it's the right thing to do. Like people who fought in the Civil War for slavery or people who fought for segregation. We have to confront that they did that because they thought it was the right thing to do. It's not like this irrational thing. It's a very rational choice that they believed was the right choice. and. So that's another thing is like with racism, we can't just dismiss it as this irrational thing. It's a very rational thing for people who are racist. And uh, like you said, you have to get to the deeper level of why, like how do they they get to that point of rationalizing racism? But uh, I had a train of thought too and I lost it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, and you come in when you're ready, but it's, it's like, um, like I said before, it, it is building that relationship is what actually really changes people when you're able to do that. You know, Drew Brees having that, saying something crazy on his interview, you know, about it, not even understanding the sensitivity level of what's going on in the country and his very teammates. Like he was so unaware. It makes me like, I'm like, how, you know? One thing I was thinking about is our consciousness of history. So, uh, like we we have we're here, twenty twenty, and another way that we always think that we're good people is that if we had lived back in the civil rights movement or whenever, that we would have we would have been. I'll speak from my experience. I think you know I would have been the white guy that was a freedom writer or I would have been marching on Washington, all this stuff. But that's like, that's like a hypothetical that allows us to escape the present. So 
maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have been. It's impossible to know. But what I do know is how most white mm. people, including white Christians, the overwhelming majority of white Christians, I know what their response was. And I live in 2020, so what can I do in 2020 to have an impact? So it's like that the historical consciousness that white Christians have almost always been on the wrong side of history when it comes to racism. Like at, at every juncture of history, white Christians have chosen the wrong path. And so here we are again today, 2020. What path are white Christians going to choose? How is history going to judge the white evangelical 81% that voted for Donald Trump in 2016? I don't know. We'll find out. But I think it helps to consider that question of how our actions will be perceived from the future. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, when I think about these organizations, literally this summer, who jumped on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon, um, all of a sudden, when this has been going on, Colin Kaepernick, Ben took a knee. Uh, you know, this information has been here for obviously years and years. Um, about systemic racism or racism in general, all these things. But now that it's become um, culturally okay or the sway of society has said, oh, it's a good thing to be over here. Now, all of a sudden, all these companies are so Black Lives Matter and everything and are put out there. And I was like, but I'm glad you're there. Don't get me wrong. But where were you before? You know, and were you just waiting on society or were you actually looking at these different decisions and ideas beforehand and saying, wow, maybe uh, we should address this, you know? So, yeah, it's like that's that's always been the thing with movements like the civil rights movement wasn't popular for white Christians in the 60s. Say it. Say it. Like, I know it's coming. Say Dr. it. Dr. King wasn't popular among white Christians, now even up into my lifetime, like I heard people in my extended family talk about Dr. King, like he was immoral, he was a womanizer, all this stuff. Like it was preached from pulpits in the South to white people trying to discredit what Dr. King was doing. But now everyone quotes him and you know, puts it out there on Facebook every year on MLK Day like they would have been on his side in the 60s. And I think that most people probably wouldn't have been. And like with organizations, like the Black Lives Matter organization, uh, like it's people trying to discredit it now as like this communist Marxist thing, which is really interesting when you look back at the 60s. People said the same thing about the NAACP. And it's like at the time, no one gets on board until it's safe. And like you said, like now it's, it's starting to be safer to endorse Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. Interestingly, the Southern white evangelical church is like the last place where it's going to be safe to say Black Lives Matter and, you know, to, to really affirm things like that. So even though like culture broadly is starting to embrace it because it, it's beneficial to them, the Christian church is still really struggling to embrace it. So how, so this question is for, I'm thinking about the person who's listening to this and they are a little bit angsty feeling about 
uh, all of this. They know there is a problem. They don't know what they want to do or if they want to do anything about it, um, but they feel angsty um, about doing something for it. What would be your advice to a person who is listening to this episode and they're, they're, they're in between? And might, most likely they're going to be a white person who is generally tried to do good things in life, tried to be a good person um, and sees the issues going on but have yet to really make the move to stand up to injustice just in their lives that they know this period. What would be your advice for them? Uh, I think keep learning. I think once you start to become well-informed about history, then it's impossible not to do something or not to be pushed to action in some way. So like history, knowing about history is how we know the context of today. So in order to understand where we are today, we have to understand history. So, so learn backwards like that, but then also learn from people around you, learn from their experiences. And then once you start to, to know how people still experience racism personally today, that should also push you to action. So it's like those two different elements. And then uh, as far as like the action itself, uh, probably none of us are going to be like actually, you know, writing uh, new laws or repealing anything that's that's on the books now. Uh, I think people should do that, but what we can do is affect our circle of influence or our sphere of influence. So for me, where I went to college. I can have an impact on the school that I'm an alumnus of, so I can try to do that. Or my family, the people in my life that know me and trust me, I can do something to to help them gain more context about history and where we are today. Um, it's just, as a nine, the easiest thing for me would be to do nothing, to just chill and not to rattle anyone's cage, not to rock the boat, not to cause any controversy, that would be great. But uh, inaction is being complicit with the system. So, like that's the biggest motivator for me. Is I sit here and I think, if I don't do anything, then what I'm saying is I'm completely okay with everything as it is. And if I'm not okay with everything exactly as it is. I have to do something. And so it's just doing a little bit every day. Thank you for that. Um, thank you so much, Jackson. Uh, I really appreciate just your, your study and knowledge of it. And we barely, like we touched on the surface of how deep this really gets. Um, I'm super excited um, and really thankful that uh, I was to have you on. I'm definitely probably going to have you on for uh, an interview on talking about the type nine Cause I mean, dude, you're super action oriented, um, and and it's absolutely amazing, and not just action that doesn't pertain to your priorities. I mean, you're actually going for things that really matter to you, and that's one of the highest calls um, of anyone, but especially the nine in their type structure. So I really thank you for that. Um, I thank you for dropping the knowledge here on this episode with me, and. Um, yeah, man, I'm just really appreciative um, of everything and uh, obviously our friendship and everything like that. So um, 
If you want to reach Jackson, Jackson, how can they reach you if they wanted to reach you? Or if you want them to reach you, by the way, you don't have to. Uh, yeah, email is good. Yeah, I say email is probably the best way. Okay. Yeah, being a nine, sometimes this is really difficult to deal with controversial things and for people to be angry. So maybe the next time I'm on, I can talk more about some of my experiences with that. And as a nine, dealing with hate mail and oh. controversy and stuff like that, <laughs> you'll, you'll have to help me out, help me sort through some of my nine problems with that. Yeah, that that'll that'll definitely be that'll definitely be something. I think we're both starting to get hate mail, and that's uh, that's good. Exactly, that's a part of the work. It, yeah, like it let me know that I was doing something important if people cared enough in their opposition to me to actually write hateful things. So that it just confirmed that I was doing the right thing. Yep. Not even like logical disagreements, just hateful stuff, just literally hateful. Um, <laughs> so. Wrapping up this episode, I uh, want to let you know podcasting is not free. Uh, so if you would like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash do it for the gram, um, where you can support from $1 up to how much you can. The Patreon community gets more access to me um, and the content that I have. And I'm constantly working on developing it better and better. I thank you so much for all the patrons who are currently supporting. You all are super amazing. You know who you are. Um, and I'm planning to put more things on there. And obviously they get discounts on all the programs and different things that I have. Also, in January coming up, I have what's called the Kaizen Complete Enneagram Program. It is a program that's going to be over 12 weeks. I'm teaching the Enneagram live 12 weeks um, in a row. And it's also kind of similar to like a college course. So if you're looking to share the Enneagram better, if you're looking to um, getting to coaching, if you're looking to actually really do some transformational work, practical work and applying the Enneagram to your life and how to use it and not just think about it, but actually use it to transform yourself. This is the program for you. It's the Kaizen Careers Complete Enneagram Program. You can click on the link in the show notes that allow you to get there so you can check out the information. And besides that, I'd love to see you in January. So, and besides this, if you are um, feeling some kind of way and somehow you have gotten triggered because um, something in your religion, your Christianity somehow has been made you become very reactive, then you need to take a deep breath. You need to think about it and you need to do it, make the next move and do it for the ground. Make the best beneficial move for you and your community and the community beyond yours so that we can actually make this place a better place uh, for everyone involved. And so thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next episode. Have a wonderful day. Bye.